Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening in. This is the second in our series on the geography of Judges, and this episode we'll be talking about giants in the book, and we hope you enjoy it. And as always, thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing this show, and to all of you who support us either on a one-time or monthly basis. We really appreciate that, and that helps us to be able to keep doing what we're doing. So thank you for the support, and hope you enjoy this. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today is another great and exciting episode that we just enjoy making and, and bringing to you guys. I am Kyle Keimer, and as generally the case, I'm joined here with Chris McKinney. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing good. Um, you know, for for South Texas, which is where I'm based, we get two days of the year where it's below freezing, and this is one of those days. So uh, I'm. It's cold, but uh, we're enjoying it. So uh, it's good to be here, and I, like you, am really excited about. Uh, this series, Geography and Judges, and in particular, uh, the topic that we'll be discussing today, which is giants in geography and judges. See what I did there? Uh, oh, triple that's alliteration. That's a good alliteration right there. Yeah. I think I think any English teachers that are listening to this would be very pleased with our abilities. Yep. Very, very nice. Very nice. So I'll just go ahead and start us right off. Like if we think of last... Uh, Last time we looked at geography and judges, we looked at Adonai Bezik and his 70 thumbs that he cut off from all of his vassal kings. And then we ended, of course, with himself being having his, his thumbs and big toes cut off as he was killed at Jerusalem. Which, Chris, I just want to interrupt you right here because um, we did get some positive feedback um, for the podcast, which we're always happy to to receive, obviously. And we received a, a whopping 70 thumbs and toes up. So I think we're, you know, that's uh, no greater honor than that. So. Yeah, that's way more than five stars. Uh, so if you can if you can give us five thumbs, we'd be happy to take it uh, in, in the rating. Um, but if, if we'll uh, remember that context, it ended with Jerusalem. It ended with Adonai Bezek coming back to Jerusalem where he died, uh, maybe because of excessive uh, blood loss from the loss of his big toes and big thumbs. We don't really, we're not really told. Um, but then the next verse in, uh, in Judges chapter 1, verse 8, tells us that the people of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They put it to the sword and set the city on fire. Now, I won't belabor the point here because we talked a lot about this last time in terms of the Amarna correspondence, references to Jerusalem, there, the lack of archaeology in Jerusalem uh, for the late Bronze Age overall. Uh, so you can go back and listen to that uh, to that part of of last uh, last last uh, uh, of the series episodes. Um, but I'll just say, in the context of Judges one, uh, the contradiction um, with regards to Jerusalem is is readily apparent. 
uh, so much so that I don't even know if it is a contradiction because in Judges chapter one, verse eight, it says they took Jerusalem and they set it on fire. Uh, that Judah did. But then just a few verses later, we're told that the Benjaminites did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites lived in Jerusalem among the Benjaminites to this day. And so uh, just to just to kind of to close that part off of the story in, 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 in the context of the early verses of Judges, a lot seems to be going on in the mind of the writer of Judges with regards to Jerusalem. But the big takeaway is that Jerusalem remained uh, in in the hands of the Jebusites, and it's going to remain as such until the days of uh, until the days of David, uh, when David will conquer the city in in Second Samuel chapter Second uh, Samuel chapter five. And so, in some ways, this is probably a um, an example of the many other Canaanite city states that remained outside of uh, Israel or Judah's control. Now. And this is one of those areas that I, I think is well worth thinking about um, because we often talk about this in the context of us versus them when we think of ancient Israel. Uh, but the more and more you look at the text and the more and more you look at other texts related to the Bible, and I would say even the more you look at archaeology, um, the more you see that these peoples, whether we're talking about Israelites, Judahites, Danites, Canaanites, Amorites, even to some extent uh, Philistines, there's a lot of cultural commonality between these uh, between these entities, and so there just as well could be someone who identified as a an Ephraimite uh, who lives in the city of Jebus or the city of Jerusalem at this time, and so it's it's a lot of back and forth uh, in terms of the the cultural uh, connections. Whereas the Bible is perhaps um, streamlining that a bit in terms of the way it's it's telling the story, getting us from point A to point B. And we just don't have all the details to be able to know. That doesn't necessarily see, mean it's in contradiction. It's just showing us this, this bigger story that it's wanting to get us to, which of course, as I've mentioned, is David's going to conquer the city. And this is going to be one of the, the major achievements of his, of his reign. He conquers a Canaanite city in the heartland of, of what's going to become the kingdom, United Kingdom of Israel and the, and the capital city of, of Judah, which gives him his, his kingdom as well as his status as king, really some legitimacy in the eyes of the biblical authors. Um, Kyle, do you have anything to add about, uh, about Jerusalem in Judges 1.8? Well, I'll, ju- I'll just add um, this. It's not necessarily about Jerusalem specifically, but I think it's an interesting, or I think it's a, a useful point that you kind of touch upon here is that um, no matter how um, close into the text we read, we are of, I should say, we we gain benefit though by by looking at the text at a multiple, at numerous different levels, let's say. Um, so we look at the, the instance of Jerusalem and, you know, the fact that it says it's burned with fire here, but then it's taken or it's not taken. The, the Benjaminites are living there, you know. So on the one level, we've got the specific details in Judges 1. But if we step out and look at the book of Judges, right, we need to frame the whole discussion of what's going on. And then from there, we need to step out to even larger context and consider books that come before, books that come after in the in the the canon. And we need to recognize that that a lot of what we're seeing here is going to factor in, as you said, in particularly the United Monarchy, the claims about Davidic authority and his reign. And so as scholars, as people reading the biblical text, we want to be able to move between these different levels and look at the text from all of them because each one is going to provide us a different set of questions, but a different opportunity to really uh, address issues. 
Yeah, it's completely. And, and I actually think that's one of the most enjoyable parts of the book of Judges is it's uh, setting up so many other things. I mean, as we'll see uh, moving through the book, uh, the, the, the last four chapters are not in chronological order, uh, Judges 17 through 21, because what they're doing is they're centering their stories uh, about uh, let's call it sagas or, or tales that that show how bad the time of judges compared to the monarchy and also compared to the previous generation. But they're also centering their geography around Bethlehem and other places like Gibeah and Jabesh Gilead, which set up the story for what the book of First and Second Samuel are going to be all about, which is namely the uh, geographical background of the line of Saul and the geographical background of the line of David. And so those things are, are pretty obvious in the text, and, uh, and we shouldn't miss them. And the problem is the scholars often note them and, and then say they're not historical, whereas many uh, non-scholars and many people that don't really think about geography don't even note them in the first place, uh, whereas we should all note them uh, because they're, they're really relevant to how we understand the story. Well, with that, let's move into, uh, let's move into another part we'd like to look at today. That is the idea of... Uh, the Anakim uh, in the highlands, the Anakim that uh, lived in the area of Hebron. Uh, and, and, and as you might uh, already begin to think, this can be a controversial topic, can be a very fun topic. Uh, we're not going to shy away from uh, the controversy, but instead we're going to uh, really lean into it. Um, and so let me just read the next, uh, the next couple of verses in Judges 1, 9, and 10. It says as follows, After the people of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the Shephelah. Now, it's referring to after the events that we just described, which is the, the attack of Adonai Bezek, their defeat of Adonai Bezek, and apparently the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we have a, a kind of summary of the conquest of these different three main regions of Judah, which is the hill country of Judah. Specifically, we'll learn um, in, in this context, but also the wider context of, of, of the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, that the hill country is going to be the area south of Jerusalem, all the way to Hebron and the, uh, the vicinity of Yatir uh, that heads down towards the area of the Negev. The Negev uh, is a very wide area, but it's prob primarily associated with what we call the Beersheba Basin, uh, the area just south of the of the southern hills, and the Shvela, which is just to the west of the hill country and encompasses places like Gath of the Philistines, uh, uh, Lachish, Azekah, and, and the low rolling hills. And so it's really giving us a uh, kind of a, an overview statement of the things that they're going to conquer. And then the next uh, 10 or so verses are actually going to talk about episodes in that conquest. And so we're going to see here, we're going to focus on one of those episodes, which has to do with the conquest of Hebron. Uh, but there are others as well. Immediately after this, we have the conquest of Debir. Uh, after that, we have a reference to uh, the Kenites moving into the vicinity of Arad. We have the, the Simeonites and the Judahites uh, conquering a place called Horm, uh, called uh, Zephat, which they rename Hormah. And then the fourth of these, as we, as we move into, uh, we have references to them, how they're not able to conquer uh, the areas of the Philistines, uh, the coastal, the coastal areas, and so that's the the bigger picture 
of this of this section and kind of tacked on to the end of this is the references to the Benjaminites, uh, who, uh, unlike Judah and Simeon, who get a lot of different uh, events connected with them, were just told, as we just mentioned, that they can't conquer uh, Jerusalem, that the Jebusites remain there. And uh, one of the interesting things Kyle was, was just mentioning uh, to me before we started is the, the, the relationship of this context with these names that are mentioned. And so Kyle, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So what we have here in Judges 1 is a really telling um, portrait of, of whatever time period we're talking about here. And again, this is, that's a whole topic of its, in and of itself, whether we're talking about the, the last phases of the late Bronze Age, the beginning of the Iron Age 1, somewhere in between there. But the point is that when you look through these, these verses, you get these four different sites mentioned, four of which are going to be destroyed and renamed. And so the big picture is really quite interesting because here we have this portrait of the the trials and travails of Judah and Simeon and then Benjamin. But the picture we get is one of massive change across the landscape. They, they come in, they take over these sites, and they rename them. So there's a reconceptualization of the land as Israel is moving into it and kind of making their claim. And it's kind of interesting when you actually, not only the fact that they're renaming some of these sites that they conquer, but some of the names they actually rename them too. So Kiryat Arba becomes Hebron, right? What is What does Hebron mean as a name? Well, it's probably related to Havar, something like to be joined together or create an alliance of some sort. So are they saying that some of the, the residents there actually joined with them? Or do we see that this is uh, the result of the alliance between Simeon and Judah coming in and kind of taking over? And, I mean, there's something telling in the names. And what we know about names in antiquity is there's always a meaning to them. Um, same thing with Kiryat Sefer being renamed Debir. Well, Debir, probably from Devar, to be driven away or to be subdued. That's the nature of the site. The Israelites came in, they drove the people out, they subdued the site. The same thing with Zephoth becoming Hormah, right, from Cherem, to be dedicated to the ban. It's not it's it's not theirs to take over. It is Cherem, it is Hormah, it's the destroyed town or the, the dedicated town. Which then makes it really interesting when we get to the last one, which is Luz being renamed as Bethel. Beit El, the house of El. And there's something telling, I think, not only in the almost the positive renaming of this, but the fact that you have here, it's not Beit Yahweh, but it's Beit, or Beit Yah, something like that, but it's Beit El. And so we probably have here, uh, you know, one of uh, probably a couple different interpretations is that El is an epithet for Yahweh, and this is what they're kind of renaming the name, or there's still an understanding uh, or a confluence that will later be born, born more fully between the Canaanite deity El and Yahweh. And so, but this whole reconceptualization of the landscape, I think, is going to really be telling because it allows us a snapshot into the mindset of of the biblical authors and their understanding of their experience. And this is an important thing to keep in mind as we're going to move in and talk about the Anakim, these so-called giants. You know, we in the modern world think, well, either the you know, what the Bible says has to be right or wrong. Well, it's not so much that. We need to be able to approach it from the proper mindset, the proper worldview in order to glean what the authors are saying. And we need to recognize that they're describing things in a way that makes sense to them, that as they engage or encounter things, they're describing them and in the way that they know how to. And so these are all, I think, really significant things that we should keep in our mind as we, we continue our discussion here. 
Yeah, I love this discussion. I, I love thinking about um, toponyms uh, and the way that they, um, you know, why someone would think of a place name and call it that. And what are the origins? Where does this go back to? And I always like to think about this in the context of our own kind of recent history, modern history of of the U.S., where you have a, a, a kind of a combination of um, in some places, Native American names, in some places, completely new names. I live next to a place called Taft, which is obviously named after a president. Um, you have all kinds of why these places would be named. You even have biblical names uh, appearing all over the place um, in, in the U.S. And, and one of the things that's really interesting about the Bible is uh, sometimes the name seems to be affiliated with a, a deity, and sometimes that name is uh, is changed and shifted at different times. Uh, one good example is the name uh, Baal Hatzor, uh, which is north of of Jerusalem, north of a uh, bit north of, of Bethel. Um, and so, for for it's probably all through Israel's history, it was called Baal Hatzor. Uh, but if you get into something like the Genesis Apocryphon and the Dead Sea Scrolls, they no longer call it Baal Hatzor, but it comes Ramat Hatzor. You know the heights of of hot sore because there's this recognition that Baal's not a great a great person to a great deity to have uh, your site named after, uh, and never mind uh, that. And Yigal Levin, um, you know, professor at Bar Ilan, has made some great points that in the early days um, of for these toponyms, Baal probably didn't necessarily always designate uh, Baal worship because it could be another reflection of the name Lord or husband, which it means in uh, in Semitic languages and of course Hebrew, and thus uh, an, uh, a kind of term for Yahweh himself. Um, and so in any case, it's really interesting to kind of uh, think through those. And just to add one more here, we could we could talk about this for a long time, uh, but just a, a real obvious example is the city of Anatot. Uh, right there, it's a priestly city it's right next to Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah's from there, who's a priest. Uh, we have lots of references to it. And the name is named after the uh, Syrian Canaanite goddess Anat, uh, who is, uh, of course, not someone that they uh, worshipped. But it's become the name, and it, it doesn't have that attached meaning to it. And so uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting about this uh, this topic has to do with chronology itself. Um here, Chris, can I interrupt one one last thing before you go into that? Because uh, I just wanted to throw in one last example, because on you get both the positive reframing of landscape through naming, but then the negative reframing as well. And just to give you an example of one where you're, I guess it's just an additional one, but Ha'ai, I, the, you know, the ruin. Here's a site that according to the book of Joshua, you know, the Israelites come across and it's always referred to as the I, Ha'ai, the ruin. So it's not as if it's, a proper name on the one hand, because, you know, who's going to be living in the ruin? It's not like you name your city the ruin town or, you know, terrible town USA. It's, it's, a, it's a description of the, the, the purpose of it or the function of that site as, as they experience it. Yeah, definitely. And I think even from um, whether you accept these as the historical core behind which uh, these places are named or not, it's showing that these places existed and the authors knew about the place names. And then they're using these things as a way of, of, of telling their story, which I think is, is a really important and very off, overlooked detail in the way that we approach. Uh, and it's not an issue of 
historicity or not historicity. It's it's certainly part of the way they're doing this. Um, and and it's, it's all over the place. And, and the thing I wanted to say about chronology, Judges 1 is a very important uh, chapter uh, in the Bible because many historians, many uh, scholars have pointed to Judges 1 as, as being reflective of a very early period. That is, that we can look at Judges 1 and we can see realities that reflect um, things on the ground um, in the probably the early Iron Age um, in the very earlier part of the Iron Age. And uh, and this could be also why, let's say, in the the, the question of, of a site like Hebron, why uh, it doesn't appear in uh, extra biblical sources. Hebron is a very large city. We'll talk about it in, in here in just a minute. Um, it's it's the second, it's probably the most important, it is the most important city in the Southern Highlands. Uh, and so for it not to be mentioned in extra biblical sources is is pretty uh, startling uh, to some extent, uh, and of course many other uh, very important sites aren't mentioned. Uh, but perhaps it had a, a, an earlier name, or perhaps it was referred to in ancient sources uh, by by things that are just lost to us. And so uh, it's a it's a really uh, a, a, a good point to bring up. And related to that, with these renamings of biblical sites. We could point to other ones, uh, such as Yatir, which could be related to Jethro. Libna, we've thought for a while, perhaps this is related to the Libnites who live in this area, who are related to uh, the priestly family uh, of the Levites. Hebron is also a Levitical city. And perhaps if you look at, at numbers, they have references to a person named Hebron. And so it, it, it stands to reason that these that these go under, uh, these, that these have new names. Well, with that said, let's uh, we've 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 uh, what's the word uh, we we've stalled long enough. Uh, so let's let's get to the giants. Okay, so the first episode we hear after this kind of overview of the hill country, the Negev and the Shelah, is that Judah is going to go up against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, and then we have a reference to the name was formerly Kiryat Arba, which means the city of four, or perhaps more likely the city of this guy's name, Arba. And his name, of course, would mean four. And it says they defeated Sheshai, Achiman, and Talmai. Now, uh, that's all we get in uh, Judges 1, 8 through 10. If we look in the larger context of, of Judges, if we skip down towards the bottom, of this section in Judges 1, 19 through 20, we learn that it says Yahweh uh, was with Judah and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, which would be the coastal plain, the area of the Philistines. It says because they had chariots of iron. And it says Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak or Anak. So, those those do go really go together. Judges 1, 19 through 20, and Judges 1, uh, verse 10. The three sons of Anak are the ones that we just uh, just discussed. And so this area goes to uh, to the person of Caleb, and we could spend a lot of time on uh, Caleb in his own right, because he's an interesting character. He's supposedly from the tribe of Judah, but he's also a Kenizzite, uh, who is one of the pre-existing peoples of the land. But this takes us back to uh, a, a longer narrative that we must pay careful attention to. And so in, in terms of judges, we're kind of at the end of the story of what, what's been happening at Hebron. And so we, one of the, one of the, the main th- takeaways for this 
has to be that Hebron falls to the kingdom, or I should say to the tribe of Judah, to Caleb at, at an early age, at an early date, comparatively to Jerusalem. That's, that's point one. Point two is that Hebron had been the focal point of the spy report. And for that, we're going to turn to Numbers chapter 13, uh, and we're going to listen to the complainings of those other 10 spies, not like Yehoshua and Caleb, uh, Joshua and Caleb, uh, but the other 10. And this is what they had to say after they leave Kedesh Barnea, go up to the Negev highlands. It says, they came to Hebron and Achiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the Anakites were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt, that's uh, uh, Tanis. And they came to the Wadi Eshkol, and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between them. If we skip down a few verses, we have the, the rest of the kind of analysis of the spies uh, about how they're, or whether or not they should go up to the land. It says, the people who live in the land are strong, the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Now, there's several pieces that we should uh, draw out from this. The one thing is, is, is clear that these three figures, Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, are in the area of Hebron. They are supposedly tall. They're, they're, uh, they're giants. Uh, we'll learn in, in a later section there, in, in, in that same chapter, it will say that the, Anakite, the Anakim or the Anakites are, are, are related to the Nephilim, which connects us all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 6, where we have the Nephilim as the byproduct of the sons of God and the daughters of, of mankind wedding together to create this uh, giant race. And we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that later. But they say they are there and we are like grasshoppers in their sight that we're going to just be gobbled up. We're going to be stomped if we go into this area. And one of the interesting things from a geographical perspective is essentially they went right through this desert area, crossing over the Negev, came up into the hills, and Hebron was literally the very first city that they saw. And it is a very large and very uh, massive site. Uh, and, and that was the place that that really turned their hearts to, to water on this question of if they should go up or not. Now, we'll get to these, what exactly Ahiman, Shishai, and Telmai are in just a minute, but I would like to say uh, a couple other things about uh, this passage, and that is this reference to Hebron being built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. This is a, a rather interesting detail. I would say maybe unique in the Bible as a kind of chronological clue. The problem is, is that the question is, when was Zoan built or when was Tanis built? Zoan was, was built already in the early part of the second millennium, but it became the main um, uh, lower Egyptian uh, capital, the capital of the, of the late New Kingdom in the 12th and the 11th centuries BC. Uh, and so it could be that they're saying that, first of all, assuming that it has a historical uh, connection, you know, not just a stray detail, but to to make up something like this would seem rather odd. But it could be a reference to Hebron being renamed at a very early time, or it could be a reference to Hebron being named renamed sometime in the 12th or 11th century. But a, an interesting detail, nevertheless. 
Now, the main thing that we want to uh, focus in in on this, though, has to do with the relationship between these giants and their fortifications. Because what we see in Numbers 13 very clearly connects the two. It says they're really big, they're really strong, and so are their fortifications. Deuteronomy 1, which is a a reflection of the book of Numbers, which is, uh, at least in the context of the book, meant to be Moses reflecting on the 40 years they've spent in the wilderness as they're about to cross the Jordan River. Of course, he's going to give up the ghost right before they do that. But he, he utters this line. He says, you are the guys who said the people are stronger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified up to heaven. We actually saw there the offspring of the Anakim. And so if we put all this together, it's really clear that as these spies and as early Israel was encountering these big cities, they were drawing a definitive connection between the great height of their fortifications and the peoples themselves. Now, that doesn't undermine or say that the people themselves, the uh, uh, Ahiman, Sheshai, and Telmai, and so on, that they can't be really tall people uh, or they won't be very strong, but it's, it's, it's immediately drawing attention to uh, the fact that people who could build such strong fortifications must be big and strong themselves. And I, I think that's a legitimate connection because it's right there in the text. It, it, it really uh, jumps out at you that these things are related. And we'd like to, to spend some time kind of layering this out. But before we do that, let me just kind of give you the rest of the story about what happens uh, in the context of the passage we just read in Judges 1. Uh, because we actually have kind of two versions of this story. One is in, uh, really even three versions of the story. One is the one we just read, that uh, Judah goes down, Caleb defeats these three sons of Anak. So it's part of the same story. He receives the area of Hebron. And in Joshua 11, verse 21, it says that Joshua came and wiped out the Anakim from the hill country. And it mentions three cities, Hebron, Debir, and Anab. Uh, and it, it destroys from, from the hill country of Judah. And it goes on to say that maybe there's even Rephaim, uh, Anakim in the hill country of Israel. Uh, later on in the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 15, it, it repeats what we just read in, in Judges, that it is Caleb who does it. Uh, and then again, we get that passage in Judges that we just looked at. And so even though the, the person doing the killing <laughs> or doing the driving out uh, of, of Hebron differs in some of these texts, Joshua, Caleb, it it still points to the fact that in these early days of Israel's conquest or or settlement, if you want, they had to contend with these strong giants. Now, most scholars would suggest that these giants are connected with uh, probably tribes. Now, that's, again, not to say that there wasn't a guy named Ahiman or Sheshai and Telmai, but these were, these were, entities living in this vicinity that were driven out. And so there's an interesting comparison uh, between that and that passage in Joshua 11, because it specifically mentions not giants, but it mentions three cities, Debir, Anab, and Hebron. Uh, One of the very interesting things about this is that there are essentially three major late Bronze Age cities in the Southern Hills. Hebron is one, 
De Beer or Kirbet Raboud is the other. And the third, even though it hasn't been greatly explored, is the site of Anab, which is uh, towards the southwest as you go down to uh, the Negev. And so uh, in an earlier generation of, of, of Israeli archaeologists, Moshe Kohavi, who did the emergency survey of um, the southern hill country as part of the events after the Six-Day War, he drew out this, 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 uh, this idea that uh, it's, it seems no coincidence that Joshua eleven twenty one mentions the three main cities that were occupied in the late Bronze Age. And not only that, but each one of these places can be absolutely positively identified, even though there was great debate about uh, Debir for a while. But its name, Rabud, is just the reverse of Debir, the same consonants. Uh, Anab retains the name until today in Hebron. There's no, there, you know, the city itself is right below it. And so there's just a, a very interesting connection between these three. Now, in the case of Debir, the site has been excavated. As I said, it's an important Middle Bronze, Late Bronze, and Iron Age city. Hebron itself is really in its own category, though. And I, I'd like to now turn our attention to the city of Hebron. But I would also like to see if Kyle has anything to, uh, to add. Yeah, no, Chris. I mean, I think you've you've drawn it out so nicely, and I think it, just to kind of step back and offer since the synthetic statement. There we go. It's just the, the significance of historical geography for really um, viewing the text and and looking at what's going on, but then serving as a as a almost go between between the text and the archaeology. Because I mean, it, while it's not always a, a direct correlation, it offers us the potential to view things in a different way that again many scholars just aren't familiar with the landscape or don't bother to to delve into it and i think there's a lot that can be drawn out of it as you just said i mean the whole idea of identifying these three specific sites mentioned in the text there's good good evidence you know from an archaeological perspective that we have three main sites in the late bronze age in the southern part of the hill country and there could be a connection there so i you know the possibilities are really greater when we when we draw in the historical geographical realities. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and what I appreciate about the discipline of historical geography is there's no demand that we have to harmonize everything. Like we can we can have these disparate parts that exist, but what historical geography allows you to do is to look for larger correlations in terms of the geography and the archaeology um, that that might help those disparate parts fit. It's not a demand. We don't have to, uh, they don't always have to fit. Uh, but in this case, I think there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of good evidence that, that, that they do. Yeah. Now, I would and, like to spend- uh, Can I actually, I'll just yeah. add one more thing. I just had another thought. So I'll just add it. Um, Go ahead, add the, it right away. The, uh, you know, the, again, the historical geography, I think also, as you said, yeah, it, it, we can have it you know, in different ways. It doesn't have to always cohere, but it does provide us another perspective by which to approach an ancient worldview or mindset. And I think the example that you gave too, and reading through the verses of Caleb or Joshua, which one of them is actually driving out the Anakites? Because you know, both of them are claimed to have done so. But one of the things that I think we need to step back and consider is that in the ancient world, you have what we could call maybe segmentary identity. That is, you, the way you identify yourself or that someone else identifies you varies over the course of time, but also varies in context. And so in let's just as a hypothesis, I'm just throwing it out there. Joshua is the leader of the Israelites. You know, 
things are attributed to Joshua because he's the leader. And we know this from any number of ancient Near Eastern textual parallels that, you know, the king or whoever is the leader, he's the one that does something, even though he's not the one who physically does most things. Right? At the same time, on a different level, who's the actual person that did this action? Caleb. Well, he's the one who actually the soldier or the individual who drove out these individuals. And so one text can ascribe the victory to him. Another can ascribe it to Joshua. Are they right or wrong? Well, they're both right. It's just that each one is telling the story from a different perspective. And we can allow for that without finding some discrepancy in the text. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, and, and even in the biblical text, you could say the same thing. We're going to look at some text later where, you know, David drove out the giants, but then the text explicitly said it wasn't David who did it, it was it was his it was his mighty men. And uh to draw an analogy of something even recent in the news, I think it was just announced that uh the head of ISIS who'd been holed up in in Syria somewhere was just killed. And what does it say in the headlines? Biden gets uh whatever uh, the ISIS leader. And you could point to the you know past years with uh the George Bush the second, uh George W. Bush getting Saddam Hussein uh, uh or or uh, President Obama uh getting bin Laden. Uh but then again you can also watch a movie like uh one of the the SEAL Team Six movies where they show how it uh, Zero Dark Thirty, which is a great movie. Uh how so who got him? <laughs> it, it, it's I kind of it's the same thing. And we can understand um that the book of Joshua is well telling the story about Joshua. And especially in that context, if you look at, it, at Joshua 11, it goes out of its way to say Joshua does everything that he was told to, um, uh, that that Moses told him to do. And he is faithful to the end, where w- even that is kind of a contradiction to some extent, if you think about the book, because it says that the people don't do everything. And so it's it's meant to draw um, not necessarily a contradiction in the book, but a contradiction between the character of the leader and the character of the people. And, and so you always have to be aware of these things and you can kind of be picking and choosing what you want. That's also why it's important to read again, these things as a story. With that, let's turn our attention to uh, the only possible reference to the Anakim in uh, the ancient world that we know of outside of the Bible. And that comes from a very interesting set of texts called the execration texts. Um, these, by their very name, refer to cursing. Uh, these are found at a couple of different places in uh, in Egypt. Uh, they were found in figurines. They were found on bowls that were uh, written on and then ritually smashed by priests there even seems to be other sacrifices, perhaps even human, associated with these uh, with these uh, texts that were meant to symbolize the defeat or at least the devastation of these cities that in the early part of the second millennium, Egypt considered to be enemies, uh, perhaps uh, state, uh, city-states that they wanted to conquer. This is a very important historical source for us. It's really our only historical source that we have in terms of a text that dates to the early part of the uh, Middle Bronze Age. And there's been a number of studies on this uh, by Amnon Bentor and, and others. Katharina Strait has written something relatively recently on this, debating whether or not it reflects real historical uh, realia. And, and the fact is that it, it seems to, that the sites that are mentioned, such as Laish, an earlier name for Dan, Afek, uh, a, a site in, along the plain, Shechem, Jerusalem gets mentioned there, Ashkelon, and many others, that all of these seem to have uh, Middle Bronze Age uh, Middle Bronze Age remains. Now, wh- what does this have to do with the Anakim? Well, the answer is, we're not sure exactly 
even if you look at more recent studies, uh, it seems like most people are kind of afraid to draw a connection or or uh, even afraid to, to mention that there might be a connection. But the the list of Asiatics, which is the old way of referring to to Canaan, it, it has reference to I Ankh. I Ankh. There's these three figures that appear at the head of the Canaanite list, if you will. And an earlier generation of scholars very hesitantly, but 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 still suggested that perhaps this refers to the Anakim, and in the context of in the context of what we're talking about, it would actually uh, again we can't say with certainty, but it would make some sense. It would make some pretty good sense uh, in terms of Hebron because it's an important Middle Bronze Age, uh, a Middle Bronze Age site, which doesn't get mentioned as Hebron in uh, the extra-biblical literature. And so perhaps, again, we can't say with certainty, but perhaps this would be a reference to Hebron in the execration text. Uh, certainly something to, you know, let's put on the table as a possibility. Now, one, one, another thing that we need to uh, kind of get at is uh, dealing with the question of, the bigger question of giants in the Bible. And uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just simply say that in Genesis 6, I would hold the position that what we have going on there is a, a reference to the divine counsel, sons of God, what we would call in later times, angels sleeping with uh, mankind, human women, and this producing a, a, a giant group that becomes part of the reason why the flood uh, occurs, according to the book of Genesis. Numbers 13 draws that that connection pretty explicitly, where it says the Nephilim and the Anakites or the Anakim are related, that these are uh, entities that correspond with, uh, with one another. And so there's, there's, there seems to be some, some good connections there. Now, what I'd like to look, though, at is what, what does that mean? Like, well, what does it mean that you would have these giants living in the land? And uh, I'm sure, Kyle, uh, you're, if you're like me, people know that you are into archaeology and well-meaning people will send you emails with a large skull of, of uh, that's obviously not photoshopped at all uh, of someplace in Greece. And uh, the question is, is this, is this real? Is, the, is there really giants? And the answer is 100 uh, percent there are <laughs> I'm just kidding, uh, that they're, they're, they're fake. I mean, these are, these are doctored photographs. They're not real. There's been no evidence uh, found uh, that I'm aware of 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 supersized um, supersized individuals living in the ancient world, which makes sense to some extent because we live in a time in which our diet uh, um, is is much is much healthier. We have more calories. We, we could become taller, and so we have all kinds of of proof. And there's of course more people being born, so that. Uh, the idea that you'd have more taller people at our age than, than in ancient times makes sense. And yet, all throughout the ancient world, whether we're talking about the Bible, Mesopotamian literature, and especially Greek mythology, giants were a, a, a major part of the way they tell their origin stories, the way that they talk about how even cities were built. In fact, if you go to uh, Mycenae, or if you go to Shechem, you will have references to a cyclopean wall. I only learned a couple of years ago what that actually meant. I just thought that meant a big wall. That means it's so big, only a cyclops could uh, could build it. 
uh, and Cyclops. They're big. I mean, they got one eye. They're 30, 40 foot tall. And they pick up these massive, uh, massive stones. And so what we're, we're really pointing to then is in the context of, um, let's say, a city like Troy or Mycenae, the Greeks thought that these cities are so massive and so big that only the gods or uh, god-adjacent entities, the Cyclops, could have had uh, could have built them. And, and I'm not saying that the biblical authors are, are, are definitively, definitively saying that, but that's, I, I think, really what people thought, that these are massive cities that only very large uh, beings could have constructed that. And so you can draw really a connection between those, those, those texts um, where we talk about big structures, particularly fortifications, with massive stones that when you look at, and, and those of you who have been maybe to the city of David, I, I mean, it, you can't stand at the Gihon Spring and, and see these stones that are bigger than you are, both uh, height and width in every which way, that were laid there without use of, of modern machinery and not be amazed. And we sh- we're amazed today. How much more so would they be am- amazed, um, especially not being alive uh, as these structures were built? If we think about particularly the Iron Age, all these structures were still being used in the Middle Bronze Age. And that's really a key point here. In the Middle Bronze Age, we're talking about 2000 to 1550 BC, is where we have this, this um, the foundation of all of these major cities, Hebron, Jerusalem, talk about places like Aphek and Timnah and so on, where you have these massive walls that, that are constructed, and specifically the case with, with, with Hebron, that's, that's the case. And so if you're living, let's say, 600 years after the construction, and it's just something that's always existed here, uh, your logical explanation, I have no record of how anybody could do that. I couldn't do it. Uh, so why wouldn't uh, one of the uh, giants of the past that we have as part of our literature, as part of our worldview, why couldn't they have done it? Uh, and so that's what we see in Greek mythology. That's what we see, I think, in the Bible. That's what we see in, in Mesopotamian literature, and it's part and parcel of that world. Yeah, Chris, can I jump in here for just a second? I think you know it's such an important thing to, as you're painting the picture here, again, to allow for the ancient worldview and the mindset to come through the text. And you know, here's a great instance. They come in, they see again, presumably, or are they come in? They see these sites that I mean had been existed. These stones are enormous. How do you make sense of that? How do you make sense of something that? It just blows your mind and you've never seen something of that scale or quality uh, in your life. And you have a great story in the New Testament, too, where the disciples come to Jerusalem for the first time and they, and they look at Herod's temple platform and they say to Jesus, wow, look at this thing. I didn't realize humans could do this. And, you know, think about your own experience today. Is there a structure out there you've seen that just blows your mind with the how in the world did that get built? I, you know, I, as not an engineer, have no concept of it, can't think of it. It's it's incredible. Of course, I, I know that, you know, other factors, there are engineers or people that do this and that. People in antiquity didn't always have that that knowledge or, or have the specialization to to put all of that together. It, it could also explain why we think aliens built the pyramids. You know, we still have a, a disconnect sometimes between what has actually been capable by people versus what we think is capable by people. And here we see 
an attempt to bridge that gap and say, what in the world is going on here? And how do we make sense of this? Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And I, I, I mean, I, for one, trying to maintain a supernatural worldview, I mean, maybe they help. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, maybe, maybe they did. But um, the point is, is even if we think about metallurgy, like so creating a metal object that could then be used as a tool or weapon was something that was almost uh, magical, really was magical to be, to be able to have those skills, that know-how to be able to do it. It was, it was something that, of course, no one could really do unless we have specialization in it. Today, we're in our scientific age where everything has a scientific mathematical, uh, scientific law explanation, and that's the main cause. Uh, we're much more geared towards thinking through, okay, what degree does it have to be? Uh, and how does that fit in with the laws of thermodynamics? They weren't thinking along those lines, and we shouldn't demand that they that they were. And uh, And again, another point here is that this is not just biblical uh, figures thinking along these lines. We have uh, Egyptians. One of my favorite texts of ancient uh, of ancient Egypt. It's, uh, it's simply called uh, a satirical letter. Uh, it is just filled with sarcasm, which I which I really like. It's this scribe writing back to one of the the trainees back in Egypt, and he's he's saying, you know, you think you got it hard where you are. I'm in. I'm off in Canaan, and can you even imagine what it was like? And he describes all these different situations. He talks about how he's on a valley, and one side it's really deep. And if he just lets go of the reins a little bit, he's going to go crashing off. And by the time he's through that valley, the yoke on his chariot's broken and no one's around to fix it. And his horse is, t- I mean, he's just complaining the whole time and it's, it's great. Uh, but one of the things he says is, he says, we come to this top of this narrow valley and it's dangerous because there's these nomads. He, the translation often does Bedouin, but I'll try to avoid that. Uh, these nomads who are around and they're hidden under the bushes. Some of them are four or five cubits from their noses to the heel and fierce of face. Their hearts are not mild and they are not going to listen to wheedling. In other words, you're in bad trouble if you run into face with one of these Canaanite nomads uh, in the in the late Bronze Age, which is again, precisely the time period uh, that we are referring to. And it refers to this height, four or five cubits. Now a cubit, there's a bit of a debate uh, if it's, 54 centimeters or 52.5 centimeters, uh, it's around 18 or, or, or 20 inches. Uh, we have a lot of these that exist in Egypt because of the conditions. So we can compare it to you know, different time periods. But four or five cubits is tall, like uh, uh, abnormally tall, something like seven foot or maybe just a little bit uh, less. Four, cubit, four cubits would be uh, on the very tall side of normal. Five cubits would be beyond, uh, beyond normal. But one of the interesting things is this is precisely the height of Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, according to the Septuagint. Uh, Unlike what we have in the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible, which has six cubits in a span, we uh, we have four cubits in a span, which would make someone in the six foot, mid six foot, maybe a little bit taller range. Um, Again, not to say they wasn't tall, considering most people were uh, mid mid five feet in in the ancient world or or, or less, uh, but not not a mountain size like you see in uh, in mythological uh, uh, situations. And so the point is is that neither one seemed to be all that realistic and necessarily what we would expect for the height. But the point is is not meant to be specificity. 
like maybe they could have me- measured Goliath after his head was cut off, but then you'd have to bring his head back to really get his height. Um, <laughs> um, but this guy who's, you know, driving his chariot, he's running from these guys like old West style as they're t- attacking him from the bushes. And he says they're four or five cute. Four or five cubits tall, way taller than any. I mean, it's not meant to be uh, a, a draft report uh, written by Mel Kuyper about you know the the tackle from uh, Stanford. It's meant to be something to say they're really big, they're they're really tall, and uh, again, so we can talk about it from a mythological standpoint. A mythological standpoint, we can also talk about it from a the, in terms of the way that they're talking about uh, these different things. And uh, and so we can say that there's a commonality between both the way that they would associate it with origins, but also the way that they would associate it with, you know, just really tall people that they would encounter as enemies. Now, we're, we're running out of time, but I would like to just end by pointing to the remains at Hebron. The excavations took place there in the 1960s by an excavator named Hammond. Um, and the Six-Day War broke out, and he kind of just abandoned ship. In more recent years, um, my good friend uh, Jeff Chadwick has been continuing to publish uh, things from, from Hebron and has largely demonstrated that Hebron, uh, both in the Bronze and Iron Age, was a major site uh, with massive, massive uh, walls, some of which are just as big as what you would see at, uh, at Shechem. It's built over an early Bronze Age city, but in the Middle Bronze Age, there are absolutely gigantic, what we would call cyclopean walls that would have been in use at the site that seem to have been used during the Late Bronze Age, the Early Iron Age, and into the Iron II. In other words, more or less the same situation that you see at Jerusalem. And so the city that uh, let's say the spies would have encountered and the city that would have been conquered by Caleb and Joshua, according to the biblical text, possessed absolutely huge walls that would have been visible uh, to anyone who approached the city. And so one can easily draw a connection then between uh, the passages that we referenced, where we talk about these sons of the Anakim, the sons of the giants, and the walls that were there. Again, it's not it's not saying that they weren't tall. Maybe they were. Maybe they were very tall. In fact, we don't even have how tall they were. All we have is Goliath to go off of in terms of a measurement. But the walls themselves uh, seem to be seem to be a connection a connection point between comparing their height and comparing uh, their, their 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 ability to construct such massive. Uh, so, so such massive uh, fortifications, uh, and there's much more we could say. In fact, maybe we'll we'll draw attention to this in a later episode and seeing how this relates to the Philistines, because actually in the biblical text there is a definite connection between when we talk about the the Canaanites uh, or these Anakites, Anakim, Rephaim, uh, and the Philistines of the area of Gaza and Gath. And we have references to them living in the area of of the Philistines. And of course, David's going to encounter them later on, but we'll save that for a future episode. And so thus ends part two of Geography in Judges special giant edition. And we'll we'll get into uh, some of the other uh, interesting parts of this 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 narrative about about judges next time 
You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.